Well, imagine with me for a moment that a friend or an acquaintance that you talked to this coming week says something like this. I met the nicest guy the other day. You say, well, who was it? And your friend says, his name was Wade Humphreys. Now, I hope you would say, oh, I know him. He's my pastor. To which your friend would have a puzzled look on their face. I don't think this guy was a pastor. He was a banker. No, the Wade Humphreys, I know he was a pastor. Well, describe him. What, what did the Wade Humphreys you met look like? And your friend says, well, he was six foot five. You say, well, maybe we're not talking about the same person. Where's he from? And your friend says, Toledo, Ohio. You see, they may have the same name of the person that you know, but be talking about someone completely different. Now, I want you to understand that just because someone uses the name Jesus doesn't mean they're talking about the Jesus of the Bible the Jesus that we are worshiping this morning. Now I want to show you this, this danger that's out there, and I want to show you this from the book of Colossians. So turn there with me, Colossians chapter 2, as we continue our study, line by line, verse by verse. Colossians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 8 through 10. The title of my sermon is, Who is Jesus? And this is part 1. It's going to take us two sermons to get through this next section of Scripture, really three, but part about Jesus is going to, who is Jesus is going to be two parts. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me, in honor of the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living word. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, the Bible says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name and we are so grateful, Lord, for your presence here. Lord, the privilege, the opportunity of of gathering and singing praises to your name. And and we're reminded today that your word says that you inhabit the praises of your people in some way in which we cannot fully explain. When we gather and we worship you, you draw near to us. And we are grateful for your nearness. And we, Lord, come to you expectantly. We, We trust that you're going to work in our lives today according to your word. The Spirit of the living God, I ask you to fall fresh on us, to break us, mold us, melt us, move us into who you've called us to be. And we'll thank you, Lord, for that grace. May the name of Jesus be lifted up in this place. Establish my steps from your word. We ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As Paul writes this letter to a group of believers in the first century city of Colossae, there in the 
Lycus River Valley. The first section of the letter, which we would call chapter 1, is mainly about encouragement. He's praying for them. He's talking about his philosophy of ministry. But then in chapter 2, Paul shifts his focus to begin to address some concerns he had heard about this church. Paul had heard that some false teaching had begun to infiltrate this church. So there in chapter 2, he begins to deal with this false teaching. And this section relates to false teaching as it relates to Jesus Christ. So there are two aspects of this passage that relate to Jesus that I want you to see. First of all, I want you to see there is a warning about error. A warning about error. Look what Paul writes there in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. Now that phrase translated see to it in the original language is the word blepo, uh, which could be translated beware, be on the lookout, be on guard. I believe beware is a better translation in this context. He's saying be on guard because there's false teaching all around you. And he's warning them to uh, beware of that false teaching. And several things about false teaching emerge in verse 8. For example, we see in this verse the danger of false teaching. Why is false teaching so dangerous? Verse 8 says, see to it, beware that no one takes you captive. This word captive speaks of carrying someone away from truth into the slavery of error. And that's the danger of false teaching. False teaching enslaves people. False teaching destroys lives. False teaching leads people to eternity separated from the one true God. And so he says there, this false teaching that is infiltrating your church is taking people captive. And this is in, in antithesis to the truth because Remember what Jesus said over in John chapter 8. He said, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. So you see the, the, the contrast there? False teaching takes you captive. False teaching destroys lives. Truth, biblical truth, will set you free. When you embrace truth, you will find eternal life and abundant life. And we need to be on guard because false teaching can lead people into captivity into bondage but not only do we see the danger of false teaching in this verse we see the methodology of false teachers what do they do how do they take people captive what is their mo well there are some clues to this in verse eight and there are three words i think which encapsulate false teaching methodology first of all is the word seduction verse eight says see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy that word uh, philosophy was used uh, over in Acts chapter 17 of the philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, which were Greek ways of thinking about life and thinking about uh, their meaning and their purpose in life. But not only did a philosopher, this term philosophy, apply to Greek ideas, it, it also applied in the first century to Hellenistic Judaism, to the beliefs that came under that uh, construct, under that way of belief. So the word philosophy or philosopher came to be an umbrella for all different types of belief systems and what would happen is someone would come into town and they would come with an authority and they would say i have something to share that is truth and they would seduce people to believe in their false teaching they would pose as authorities or experts they would make you think 
these philosophers would make you think that their message is indeed legitimate. So they would seduce people from the truth into believing a lie. And seduction is the M.O. of false teachers. Let me give you an example. When it comes to the Mormon church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, many people are seduced because they put on such a, a good appearance. They, they portray that they're all about the family, right? And you see them, they're, they're emphasizing family life. And people think, well, that's appealing. The family's important, and they're, they're emphasizing the family. So that could be something I could buy into. I, I need to listen to what they have to say. And when you get beneath that, that veneer of family and external righteousness, you, you begin to dig into the teachings. You see what they're teaching is it completely antithetical to the Bible. It is heretical. It is leading people astray. For example, what do Mormons believe about Jesus? They believe that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, Satan himself. We do not believe that. That is not the Jesus we're worshiping this morning, right? But people are seduced by that false teaching, seduced by that perversion, because it looks so good. The commercials are great. The brochures are, are, are produced well. They're slick. They look nice. The people are polite, and they think, well, it can't be that bad. Let me hear out what they have to say. And people that hear out what they have to say, if, if they're not careful, can be led astray. And it's not just with Mormonism. And all these different worldviews and philosophies and false teachings and cults and world religions are very seductive in what they promise. But they never deliver. They only deliver heresy that destroys lives. Seduction is one of the methodologies of false teachers. Second is deception. Deception. Look what it says there in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Empty deception. This phrase, empty deception, speaks of a hollow sham. Having no truth content. It's, it's misleading. In other words, this deception is the opposite of truth. And not only is it misleading, it's empty. There, there's nothing in it that can, that can meet your deepest needs. It is vain. It never delivers on what it promises. And we don't have to live very long to know that it is easy to fool people. And if we're not careful, we can be fooled ourselves. This was illustrated by the great Presbyterian preacher Donald Gray Barnhouse. He tells a story about he and his friends when they were teenagers and how they would play a practical joke on folks. He, he tells a story of, of standing on the street and one of them would point up in the sky, just looking up into the sky there on a busy street. And one of his friends would say something like this, it is not. And then another friend would say, it is so. And there would be this debate going on about what they were pointing to in the sky and they're pointing to nothing. Before long, people would come walking down the street and they would stop and begin to look up in the air. And, and more and more folks would gather to the point where Barnhouse and his teenage friends would slip away from the crowd. They'd go to the other side of the street and watch all these folks looking up into the air, looking at nothing. And they got a big kick out of doing that. Barnhouse observed this. That little incident is a good illustration of all the earthborn religions. People talk about having faith. They tell you to look in a direction where there is absolutely nothing. Some people are so desperately in need of seeing something that they will look till they are almost blind, yet they never catch a glimpse of anything real. 
In other words, it's easy to lead people astray, saying, hey, look over there. But what they're pointing to is nothing that satisfies the soul. And so false teachers use seduction and they use deception. But third, they are all about invention. Invention. False teachers are not teaching the doctrines of God. That's why they're called false teachers. Look what the Bible says there in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Watch this. According to the tradition of men. According to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. False teachers are teaching things that have been invented by men. He says, according to the traditions of men. If you look at the, the world religions out there, the cults out there, these are things that have, have formulated in the minds and hearts of people. These are things that they have invented, and they are teaching to be true. I read an uh, article, or saw the headline, of, I didn't read the entire article, but I saw a headline about a Scientology building and, and the Scientology building has a floor where people can go and get superpowers. I didn't even want to waste my time reading that article. And, and Scientology is this, is this false cult that was just formulated in the minds of men and, and, is, and is really leading people astray. It's according to the traditions of men. And that is a major difference, listen, between cults and world religions and biblical Christianity. We are not inventing things we're talking about today. We are standing on things that have been revealed to us in God's Word. That's a big difference. What we're talking about is revealed truth. God has spoken. We learn it. We believe it. We build our lives on it. We build our church on it. We are standing on the revealed Word of God. We're not making this stuff up. Cults, world religions, are making it up. It's in the minds of men according to the traditions of men. But not only that, look what it says next. According to the elementary principles of the world. Now this is an interesting phrase. This, this phrase, elemental principles, was a Greek word that was used to speak of the ABCs of something. Like, you might say something like, we need to learn the ABCs of dealing with our finances. Or the ABCs of cooking. You know, it, it speaks of things that are elemental, the basic principles necessary to learn something. That's how this word was used. But it's not the only way that it was used. This word was used in ancient Greece to speak of the elemental spirits of the universe. It could be applied to the demonic realm. And I believe that's the way this word is being used because of the context. Verse 10, he mentions there the the fact that Jesus is the head over all rule and authority. That word authority was used of the demonic authorities, the, the angelic and the demonic authorities, and saying Jesus is over all of them. And then in verse 15, which we'll study next week, it says that when Jesus died on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, making a public display of them. In other words, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, cross he dealt a decisive mortal blow against Satan and his demons. And in the context here, speaking of demons, I believe this verse back in verse 8, elementary principles, is better translated according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary spirits of the world. I believe this is talking about demonic influence and false teaching. You look there in your notes. 
These false teachers are teaching things that have been invented by man, influenced by demons. And this idea is uh, corroborated over in 1 Timothy. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4 with me. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. This is very direct verse. 1 Timothy 4, Paul writes, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. You see that? He's saying these false teachings in the latter times will be false teaching influenced by, accompanied by demons. That's pretty clear, is it not? So back in Colossians, I believe what he's saying is, the false teaching you're being exposed to are invented in the minds of men, but influenced by demons. Here's the reality. Demons will give false teachers cleverness and influence to help people lead astray. They help lead people astray. Let me give you a sobering thought. If you want to start a cult, if you want to start a new religion, Satan himself will help you out. He'll come to your aid. He'll give you some cleverness to get in people's lives. He'll give you some influence with others. And he'll give you what you need to perpetrate a false religion. That's what Paul's saying here back in Colossians. You know, I think about someone like Adolf Hitler that led uh, thousands astray. Uh, in a, uh, millions astray, in a, uh, you know, a, a progressive country that was well-educated. How did so many, now, of course, all the Germans did not buy into the philosophy of Hitler. Uh, there, were, there were many that stood against him and his evil uh, schemes. But he led many people astray, and, and people followed his authority, and even bought into his worldview that said, there needs to be one master race, and, and we, need to, we need to take out this race that is, is keeping us away from master race. We need to take out the Jewish people. And he began to uh, lead in, in genocide. I mean, killing millions of Jews. How did this happen? How could people buy into this philosophy and, and follow a madman like Hitler? Listen, the devil was helping him. I don't think it's any coincidence that, that Adolf Hitler was into the occult. It's well documented. He, he dabbled in the occult. Satan was helping him. He was a madman. I believe he was demon-possessed. And Satan was giving him influence with the masses. Is that scary? It ought to be. You say, wait, this is freaking me out. It ought to. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, be careful. That false teaching that's infiltrating your church is, is invented by men, influenced by the demonic realm. Be very careful. So we see here the methodology of false teachers, but just a quick word about the goal of false teachers. What are they getting at? What are they shooting for? Look what it says in verse 8 of Colossians 2. It says, They want to take you captive through philosophy, empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So they're teaching will be about everything other than the biblical Jesus. Now, now listen, they may use his name. They may use the same name. They may talk about Jesus, but the Jesus they're talking about is not the Jesus of the Bible. 
And their ultimate goal is to lead people away from simple trust in the Jesus of the Bible. World religions, cults, and false worldviews get it wrong when it comes to Jesus. That's why it's wrong. Their goal is to lead people away from faith in the Jesus of the Word of God. I love this quote from Warren Wiersbe. Warren Wiersbe says, The fundamental test of any religious teaching is, Where does it put Jesus Christ, his person and his work? Does it rob him of his fullness? Does it deny either his deity or his his humanity? Does it affirm that the believer must have some new experience to supplement his experience with Christ? If so, that teaching is wrong and dangerous. So whenever you're, you're exposed to someone teaching something, a philosophy, a worldview, a religion, Look and see what that philosophy, what that worldview, what that religion has to say about Jesus. And if they're saying something about Jesus that is not biblical, then you need to run. Because that false teaching will enslave you and destroy you and destroy your family. So we need to always hold up the biblical Jesus when we evaluate other teachings that come into our lives. So here we see there's a warning against error. He's saying, be careful. False teachers are all around you. But number two, there's a call to truth. A call to truth. What Paul does, starting in verse 9, is he begins to just remind them of who the true Jesus is. It's as if Paul's saying, will the real Jesus please stand up? And he begins to walk through the characteristics of the real Jesus, the, the biblical Jesus. And here's the key. When you know the truth about Jesus and keep your focus on growing in your knowledge of him, you will be able to stand against false teaching. Let me say it again. When you know the truth about Jesus and keep your focus on growing in your knowledge of him, you will be able to stand against false teaching. So the most important question for you and your family and your church and your nation is this. Who is Jesus? I mean, isn't that the big question? Who is Jesus? Well, Paul begins to answer this question, starting in verse 9, going down through verse 15. It's going to take us two weeks to look at all the different characteristics here concerning who Jesus is. So this is part one of the sermon, Who is Jesus? But this morning, I want to share three things with you, three answers to that question, Who is Jesus? Number one, He is the God-man. The God, man, look what it says in verse 9. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity, complete deity, the fullness of deity, dwells in bodily form. The fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This verse speaks of the incarnation. Now, have you noticed that stores are in a hurry to get to Christmas. Have you notice this? When it comes to toys and, you know, shopping, it seems like Christmas emphasis starts earlier and earlier. Even in my household, I woke up the other morning and walked in the kitchen. Claire, my wife, was listening to Christmas music. I said, Claire, it's not the day after Thanksgiving. I mean, that's our tradition. What are you doing? She said, I just couldn't wait. You know what? 
maybe it's not a bad thing that we think about the incarnation other than December. Because the incarnation is a major building block for our faith. If it were not for the incarnation, you and I would have no salvation. How's that for important? And here, Paul reminds us of the, the mystery and the grandeur and the majesty of the incarnation. He says, in him, in Christ, in bodily form, dwells the fullness of deity. Now this reminds us that Jesus, who has existed for all of eternity, there's never been a time from eternity past when Jesus Christ has not existed. But over 2,000 years ago, Jesus left the splendor and glory of heaven and came to earth to take on human flesh. And here's how he did it. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and Jesus Christ was conceived in the womb of a virgin by the power of God. So when she gave birth to Jesus, she gave birth to one who was fully God, the fullness of deity, and fully man, born of the Virgin Mary, bodily form. So the doctrine of the incarnation says that Jesus Christ is not part God and part human. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And because he's fully God and fully man, he can be our substitute on the cross. Because he's fully human, he can go to the cross and die as a substitute for other humans like me. Hey, listen, I need a substitute. How about you? I need someone to die for my sins because I can't save myself. I need a redeemer. I need a rescuer. I need blood shed for my sins. How about you? Because he's fully human, he could die for other humans as our substitute. But because he's fully God, he can pay the infinite debt that we could not pay. Because we've sinned against an infinitely holy God, we deserve punishment that has no end. We can only pay that debt off in the eternal place called hell. But Jesus Christ is fully God. The fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, so he is infinite. He's able to pay that debt completely when he died on the cross for our sins. Because he's fully God and fully man, he is able to die for us and pay the penalty that we could not pay. And here's the cool thing. That word dwells. The fullness of, of, of deity dwells in bodily form is a present tense, which speaks of permanence. He is always the God-man, fully God, fully man. When he comes back, he will come back as the God-man. We will worship him as fully God and fully man forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So what should that do for you and what should that do for me? Here, listen to me, we should marvel at the mystery of the Incarnation. I'm working on a little Christmas series I want to share with you, and I'm calling it Fall on Your Knees. Because I'm convinced that, that we don't, we, we just don't get how glorious the incarnation is. Fullness of God, fullness of deity, dwelling forever in bodily form. That's who Jesus is. But if you look through the, the stream of church history, and you start to see these tributaries leading away to heresy and false doctrine. They always get it wrong here. They get it wrong when it comes to the nature of Jesus. Some emphasize his deity to the exclusion of his humanity. Some emphasize his humanity to the exclusion of his deity. 
And when they do that, they begin to veer away from the truth of the Bible. Wait, what should we do? Let's just believe the Bible. This says, in bodily form dwells the fullness of deity. He's 100% God, 100% man. Fall on your knees and worship. Who is Jesus? He is the God-man. Number two, who is Jesus? He is the complete satisfaction for our soul. The complete satisfaction for our soul. Look what it says in verse 10. And in him you have been made complete. Now notice that word complete in the English. And back up with me to chapter 1, verse 28. Where Paul says his desire is to present every man complete in Christ. Now those two verses both use the word complete, the English word complete, but they are two totally different words in the Greek language. In verse uh, 29, or 28, the word complete is teleos. It, it carries with the idea of maturity, functional maturity in Christ. That is not the same word that Paul uses in chapter 2, verse 10. The word complete in chapter 2, verse 10 is the word pleroo, which means to be filled up with. So I believe a better translation of verse 10 is this. In him you have been filled to overflowing. That's a, a literal translation of this word plero. You have been filled to overflowing. You say, wait, why do you say filled to overflowing? Because it's perfect tense, which suggests a continuing state as a result of some prior action. So he says, when you met Jesus, that's when you were filled by the Lord and you, you're continually filled by him even to this day. And it's a passive voice, which suggests that the readers have been filled by God. They did not fill up themselves. God did the filling. God met the deepest desire of their soul. God filled them up with his fullness. And that's where a lot of world religions and cults miss it. They say, you know what? If you do these things, that's when you'll experience fullness. The Bible says, come to Jesus. That's where you'll experience fullness. In him, he says, you have been filled up to overflowing. When we enter into a relationship with Christ, God the Father fills up our lives. I love this quote from Douglas Moo. He writes, in him and in him alone, God has decisively and exhaustively revealed himself. All that we can know or experience of God is therefore found in our relationship with him. Now, this is important because what seems to have been happening in the church in Colossae is false teachers were coming to the church and saying, okay, you're following Jesus. That, that's good. But if you really want to experience God, not only do you need to follow Jesus, you need to worship angels. And you need to discipline your body and, 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 and forgo some things. And you need to make sure you keep these festivals and these feasts. And if you do all this stuff, that's when you'll really experience God. And they were adding to Christianity. That's called legalism. And Paul's saying, listen to me. When you met Christ, the Lord gave you everything you need. He satisfied the deepest needs of your soul. You've been filled to overflowing all you need with Jesus. Listen to me. There, there's not some deeper experience in Christianity. 
Jesus is the deep experience. When you meet him, that's when you experience fullness. This idea that it's Jesus plus anything is, is wrong. It's in error. It's heretical. So what should we take from this, Wade? Listen to me. We should seek satisfaction only in Christ. Here's my question. Are you satisfied by Jesus? Do you understand that when you met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he filled you up to overflowing, and that's been a daily reality in your life if you just recognize it? Do you understand the filling, satisfying work of the Lord in your life? Or are you clamoring for other things to satisfy your soul? You're, you know the old rock song, I can't get no satisfaction. The reason people can't get no satisfaction is because they're looking in all the wrong places. The only place you find satisfaction is in a relationship with Jesus whereby you come to know him and you follow him every day. That's where you experience fullness. That's where you experience satisfaction. I like the Christian band Cademan's Call. Years ago, they released an album that they wrote as a, a result of their experiences traveling through Ecuador and through India. And I just love the international flavor of the album. It's called Share the Well. In, in one song, they relate their experience talking to a very poor woman in Ecuador. And she lived a very simple life. They, they mentioned that she lived in a simple little home with a dirt floor. And she had a little patch of, of ground to... to um, to plant crops in, and if, if if the weather was good, the climate was good, and things grew, she had plenty to eat. If if things were bad, if there was a famine, she would go hungry often. And they were talking about her just very simple life. She really had nothing, according uh, or related or in comparison with the world standards, compared to American standards. She had, I mean, she just had nothing. But here's what she told that band that was in her home. She said, "Jesus is all I need." And I want to ask you a question. Do you really believe that? If all the stuff was stripped away from your life, could you still be satisfied? Could you still have fullness and wholeness and joy in your life because you're experiencing the daily fullness that only comes through Christ? Seek your satisfaction in Christ. He's the only one that will deliver. He's doing a filling work in your life right now if you know him. Enjoy that fullness. Don't look for some deeper experience. Jesus is the experience. There's a third truth here about Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's the God-man. The complete satisfaction for our soul. But third... He's the king of kings. Look in verse 10. In him you have been made complete. You have been filled to overflowing. And he, Jesus, is the head, the ruler, over all rule and authority. Everybody say all. All is a small word with big implications. He says that Jesus Christ is the head, the ruler over every other ruler Every other authority, those on the earth, those in the supernatural realm, Jesus Christ is king over all. Do you understand the absolute authority of King Jesus? Do you understand that he's in control, he's calling the shots, 
if you're like me and you read the headlines and you've been seeing what's going on in our nation or our world, you're kind of thinking, oh, man, what's going to happen? All these things are, are transpiring and it looks bleak and it looks dark. Listen to me. Jesus is in control of all that. The Bible says the Lord holds the hearts of rulers in his hands. He turns them like channels of water. I read this morning in my quiet time how the Lord took Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon, the most powerful man on the face of the planet, and made him go into the wilderness and crawl around on his hands and knees and eat grass and let his hair and nails grow long. He, he was insane until he recognized that the great God of the universe, the one true God, was more powerful and more authoritative than he was. Jesus is more powerful than all the tumult, all the crisis, all the problems in this world. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And here's how we can relate to that. We should experience the joy. Everybody say joy. Experience the joy of bowing our knee willingly to the Lordship of Christ. Now, Philippians 2 records that there's coming a day when everybody, Christian, non-Christian, atheist, agnostic, cult, world religion, whatever, everybody, the Bible says, will confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and will bow their knee in recognition of the complete authority of King Jesus. That day is coming, but listen to me. There's great joy, listen to me, great joy in bowing willingly to his lordship here in this life and experiencing what it means to know that the king of the universe is your king and you're in his hand. There's a song that we sing that says something like this. One day every tongue will confess that you are God. One day every knee will bow. But still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now. There's no joy, no freedom, no peace like the peace and freedom and joy that come from bowing your knee to King Jesus. And recognizing that the king of all kings is Lord of your heart. So experience that joy of bowing willingly to the lordship of Christ. So I hope you're getting the point. If you're talking to a friend and he says he met Wade Humphreys and he says he's six foot five and from Ohio, he's talking about a different Wade Humphreys than your pastor, right? And just because somebody authoritatively with a smile on their face says the name Jesus, doesn't mean they're talking about the same Jesus that we worship. The Jesus that's revealed to us in the pages of the Word of God. So let's be on guard. And let's pursue the true Jesus Christ.